past week. So we are in the middle of our sermon series in the book of Acts. We are in Acts 3, 11 to 16 today. What we saw last week was Peter and John going to the temple, and they passed by a man who was paralyzed, a man who had to be carried in and out on, on a mat. So they, his, this man's friends would pick him up, literally, drop him in the same spot every day at the temple, and he would ask for money. It was his only way to, to make a living. So Peter and John are walking by him, and they, they hear from the Holy Spirit. And they know that the Holy Spirit is up to something. They're just clued into it. And they know that God wants to heal this guy. And so they, they look at him, and they say, Silver and gold we don't have, but what we have we give unto you. Get up. And the man was raised up. Amazing story of, of a healing. And we talked last week about how this was not a new ministry, but they were continuing the very work that Jesus Christ himself was doing on the earth. In the same, not only were they doing Jesus' ministry, they were doing it in the way that Jesus did it. Incredible. Incredible. And, uh, and I firmly believe that that's still a ministry that's continuing to this day through the church. All of us who have the Holy Spirit are to be uh, listening asking, praying, uh, looking for what God's doing in people's lives, knowing that God is drawing people to himself, and, and sharing the love of Christ whenever we can. So that was last week's story, and today we're going to look at Peter's explanation of what's happened to the crowd. But before we do, I have three backstories I want to share with you. One is from Exodus 3, 6 to 8. You're welcome to read them if you want to. I will read them for you. If you like a Bible, the ushers would be happy to bring you one. If you'd like to raise your hand, you're welcome to have a Bible as well. Exodus 3, and this is a little bit of a backdrop for our story today. This is a story of Moses and his uh, very famous, immortalized story of meeting with the burning bush that didn't burn, uh, who was God. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. It seems like Jethro would be playing banjo on his porch, doesn't it? It's kind of that name, kind of name. Um, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see that strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses! And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And listen to this. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. 
So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I love this story. Moses doesn't really know what's going on. And then he goes up and God reveals himself. I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses knew exactly what that meant. He knew who that God was, and he realized who he was dealing with. And then, uh, you know, he certainly had fear in his heart. He fell down. But, but I love what God says in this passage. I have seen the misery of my people. I think that's so beautiful. Uh, people always like to uh, say the Old Testament God is, is, you know, unloving, harsh person, and Jesus is nice in the New Testament. Not the case. Uh, very, very, very false dichotomy. The tenderness and love of God is so clear in the Old Testament. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I see them. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them and to bring them to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I love that. God's love, his kindness, his tenderness. And you realize these people were in, in, in slavery because of their sin. You know, they, they had screwed up royally. But God had compassion on them, and God is faithful, and God did not forget them. So he was going to, he saw them and he was going to rescue them. I love that. Next passage I'd like to turn to is 1 Kings 17. And I'm going to read from verse 17 to verse 24. Now this is uh, the story of Elijah. And Elijah was on the run for his life. If you want to read an interesting story, I'd read the first part of Kings and you can see that story. He was on the run from his life. He's kind of hiding. He, he's kind of in secret, just hiding out, and God is providing for all of his needs, his food and his drink. Um, and at, so, at some point, God shows Elijah this woman, who's a widow, with a son, and says, go to her, and she will provide for you in this time of hiding. We'll pick up the story in verse 17. Uh, and this is, by the way, the story where she had a very small jar of flour and a small jug of oil, and it did not run out miraculously because God was providing for her and her son and for Elijah. Uh, So it says, sometime later in verse 17, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where, they, where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing your son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. The amazing story of God raising someone from the dead in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. And that's a pretty hopeless situation. Dead. And God raised this boy from the dead, healed him, restored him completely. God is our healer. That's what God does. The final passage I want to read is from 2 Kings 5. I'm going to kind of 
pick through different parts of this. This is another story of, of what God did at the time of the kings. It says this in 2 Kings 5.1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And leprosy was, there's no cure for it, you know, very nasty disease. Um, people died from leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman felt a real hope in his heart. He went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so you can cure him from his leprosy. This is kind of a funny story. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robe and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this guy send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha told Naaman to dip into a river, and, uh, and he would be healed. So it says in verse 14, He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him to, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept this gift from your servant. It's another amazing story of healing from the Old Testament. And there's many more. I invite you to do a little study. It's kind of fun. There's an amazing Bible study tool out there. It's called Google. And if you want to learn... If you have a question about the Bible, you want to learn something interesting, you can Google it. Um, and sometimes some of the stuff you read is good. And, you know, it just, it's kind of a mixed bag. But if you, if you look at the amazing miracles God does in the Old Testament, it's, it's just shocking how many things he does and how many times he heals and reaches out. But God, it's well established by the time the book of Acts happened. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a healer. In fact, he, he raises people to life. He, he, he gives life. He takes away life. He is God. He is Lord, sovereign over all. So that's going to bring us right to our passage today in Acts 3, 11 to 16. And here Peter is explaining what has happened uh, with the healing of this paralyzed man to the people who are our onlookers. It says this, While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them, in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And, you know, this man was just healed, and he's just holding on to these guys. I think that, I remember when I first became a Christian, very awkwardly, I came forward in a church service like this, and I, and the, the pastor was praying with somebody else, or talking with them, and I grabbed hold onto him. Very strange kind of reaction, but there's something about what God was doing in my heart that my reaction was just grabbing onto this guy's arm. He was probably wondering what was going on, but uh, that's when I really came to Christ. So this man is just totally blown away by what God has done. He's holding on to Peter and John. 
and the people are astonished and come running to them. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has completely healed, that he was, has been completely healed, as you can all see. Peter has a really unique challenge when he's explaining this miracle. He has an audience of people at the temple who are, who are Jewish folks, people who have access and know by heart all of the stories that we, we read this morning about healing and resurrection. And what these people have seen is two men healing someone. And so automatically they're, they're, they're surprised that this kind of power has been given to somebody. So Peter and John do this really incredible switcheroo to kind of bring it down to the level that they can understand so they know without a shadow of a doubt who is responsible for healing. So, like I said, to the crowd, it looked like Peter and John had healed the man. But they say, it is not by our power that, we've, that we have, this person is healed. Why do you stare at us? It's not by our godliness that this man can walk. And then he says this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. So they're going back to, to the God that these people are worshiping, the Lord God Almighty, the same God that we worship, and saying, look, it wasn't us. Actually, it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorifying Jesus who was handed over and killed. And it's through Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has been completely healed as you can see. So they work their way backwards. They say, yes, we were the agents of healing here, but we didn't heal this man ourselves. It was through faith in Jesus' name. And Jesus was not just a man. He was the son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the audience would have certainly been defensive at Peter and John saying they did it, and maybe even a little defensive at Jesus, who claimed to be the son of God, doing it. But they appealed all the way back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was enough to connect the dots for this audience. And I think it's such, a, such an amazing uh, turn of communication when you think about it. And, and Peter says, you know, why does this healing surprise you? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did this all the time. In the Old Testament, he healed people. He resurrected people. And, when, and by using that, uh, that phrase, the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this phrase is taken right from that passage in Exodus 3. It doesn't appear like that many places in the Bible. That's one of the only places that it actually appears in that exact wording. And so what Peter was trying to do is actually hearken back to that to say, look, God has seen the misery of his people in their bondage to sin. Just like in the Exodus, where we had slave drivers, the Egyptians, working and beating the Israelites in bondage 
unable to be free. God saw their misery, and he released them in a great exodus. And this is the central story of the Jewish people, the exodus of God. When he released them from slavery in Egypt, the horse and the riders swallowed up in the sea, Pharaoh's horse and riders, and they're redeemed and set free from the situation. And what Peter is saying is, this is a sign. This healing is a sign. The same God that healed Naaman, the same God that raised, uh, raised the widow's son to life, is at it again. He has seen the bondage of sin and death in his people. He has taken note of that, and he has sent a Savior. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the evil one to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So why are you surprised by the miracle, is what Peter and John say. This is what God has always done. He's always been a God that releases the oppressed, that heals, that raises to life, that redeems people. Why are you surprised? This is what God does. And the ultimate goal that Peter and John had in mind was to say that it's by faith in the name of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, that the man that you see and that you know and that you've seen every day when you walk into the temple is made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. Every audience has their own unique challenges to faith in God. You know, for these folks, this audience, they understood and they were very devout, God-fearing Jewish people. And the obstacle that they had was the inability to connect what Peter and John did to Jesus, to God. And Peter and John did that for them. They took away those barriers so they could come directly to the God who saves and be redeemed and have their own exodus, their own, their own salvation from sin and death and be given a new life and be brought into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. John and Peter removed those obstacles and these people that they spoke to came to know the Lord that day. They put their faith once again in the Lord God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. By putting their faith in Jesus, God's son, uh, they were reaffirming and moving forward uh, with, the, with the church. But every audience has their own things that get in the way of faith, things that get in the way of, uh, of walking forward with God. And I think that for us, I was thinking about this phrase, why does this surprise you? And I think for us, sometimes our faith is, is hindered because we have disappointments in life. I think sometimes we don't believe that we're worthy of God's love. We don't believe that he sees us. And we don't believe that God would actually answer us when we pray to him. But God is the God who sees people's misery while they live in a land of slavery. And he's the God who does something about it. God, through Jesus, is our new exodus. Last week, I prayed for someone after service for healing. And the pain that they had went away instantly. And it was still gone a couple days later. Why should this surprise me? I was like amazed that this happened. You know, it's awesome. But it shouldn't be surprising because God is a healer. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a healer. And when you pray in Jesus' name for healing you should expect that he might heal someone. We prayed before our fall festival on October 22nd. We prayed 
that God, that it wouldn't just be a fun festival, but that God would draw people to new life. That we use this exact phrase, that people would feel magnetized into our parking lot and come to know our family and come to know Jesus. And that exact thing happened. Testimonies of people who came and were just drawn here, drove past and then turned around and came in because they felt compelled, an inner compulsion from God to come in here and come to Christ. Why should this surprise me? We prayed for it. We know it's God's will to seek and save the lost. We know that God is more invested in this project of church than I am. God is invested. God gave his life as an offering for sin. He went the ultimate act of servant leadership, taking, uh, taking the, the, the penalty for my sin on himself so I could have a relationship with God. He has given us everything and equipped the church with everything through Jesus. God's invested in this thing. Why should I be surprised when I pray or when we pray and God actually answers our prayers and brings people here and leads them to Jesus? Every Sunday before we go into service, we pray that someone who does not have a relationship with Jesus, who has not received their exodus uh, from sin and death, would be set free by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That someone would be touched, that they would be convicted of their sin, that God would meet them and and, and forgive them and, and restore them and redeem their lives. We pray that every Sunday. And now I'm seeing, as we are communicating with folks in the church more, that God is doing just that. People are letting us know, hey, I, gave, I made a decision to follow Christ on Sunday. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. But I shouldn't be surprised by that. It's God's will. We're praying for it. And God is fully invested in the church. I could tell you story after story of ways that God has touched uh, people in this church in our, in our very distant history, because I've been here a long time, 15 years now. Uh, not a senior pastor, you understand, but... Uh, I've been in this fellowship for 15 years. I mean, God has done amazing things in this church, amazing acts of healing, has spoken, spoken things to people, uh, has, has done all kinds of amazing work. And the whole point for me is, just like with this miracle that Peter and John did, we shouldn't be surprised. That's our God. That's what God does. God is a healer. God is a redeemer. God is a savior. When you pray that God will do those things, What's he going to do, Bonnie? He's going to do them. <laughs> now, his, waves are, his ways are elevated above my ways. I don't always understand the ins and outs of everything he does. God is not actually beholden to me, even though I'm the senior pastor. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm like the, uh, you know, I'm not in charge of what God does. I don't tell God what to do. We create the conditions for God to move by, by praying, by seeking after him, by inviting him and asking him to move, by asking him to do things. But we can't control anything God does or does not do. God is a free agent. We know that God is good. And God, uh, God demonstrates his work to us. But we shouldn't be surprised when we pray in line with what God wants to do, and he does it. But I think sometimes we just have these impediments to faith. Just like these, this initial audience that couldn't get past um, Peter and John working on behalf of Jesus, working on behalf of God— or Jesus was God, so working on behalf of himself, just like they couldn't get past that until it was explained to them, we sometimes can't get past um, uh, the things that, that promote lack of faith in us, and we begin to not expect very much from God at all. But the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still at work in the world today. He's still at work in the church. He's still at work, like in the story of Peter and John, healing people. He's still at work saving people. He's still at work drawing people. Sometimes the disappointments that we have, and this is something that, that my family has very intimate knowledge of, something that we struggle through and talk through on a regular basis. The disappointments we have with how life goes or doesn't go can become for us this wall in our hearts. It hardens our hearts. And we begin to, we might still be praying, but we, don't, we, we lose our belief. We lose our, our remembrance that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is still about doing these things that he's always done. But when we, when we pray about something and it doesn't go the way we want it to, instead of processing that grief that we have from our will and not lining up with God's will somehow, instead of processing it, we put up a wall between us and God. And we, and we, we might continue to pray, but we don't, we don't believe anymore. We don't believe God's actually going to do anything. But we need to work through that as a people. We need to be a people who process through our disappointments, that process through the things that have caused us to put walls up with God, because when we stop praying in faith, we're going to see a much lower percentage of God doing anything at all. I said last week, my theology of healing, physical healing, we pray for people to get healed. Sometimes they're healed. Sometimes they're not. God's a free agent. God's ways are above my ways. I don't know why he heals some and not others. I don't understand the ins and outs of it. But I will tell you this. The more you pray for people to be healed, the more healings you will have. And it's the same with everything, everything in our relationship with God. You know, if we give up on, on praying in faith to God because of disappointments that have gone unprocessed in our lives, this is something we talked about in our book study of River Dwellers, the last chapter, if you want to reread that. If we do not process those disappointments with God, talk about them with people in the community, and wrestle through those things, we're in danger of losing our faith that God does anything. But God is a God that sees the misery of his people. God is a God who, who doesn't just sit idly by and see that. He reaches out and does something about it. That's what he was doing through Jesus. He saw us in bondage to sin and death, and he did something about it. He had compassion on us. And we must never forget that. We must never forget that God actually wants to work and move in not only our personal lives, but in our church. So that question that Peter and John asked from, was this week for me so poignant. Why are you surprised that this has happened? This is what God has always done. This is what God does. And we shouldn't be surprised when God answers our prayers. When God, even through, uh, through our imperfect supplication and seeking after him, actually does something, we shouldn't be surprised. That's who God is. This week, I want you to pull out your phone or your day planner and set aside an appointment. Right now, just do it. Make an appointment where you can meet with God. And what I want you to do is to think about when you pray for things, do you expect God to answer? (laughs) Really consider that. And I want you to set aside some time and talk to God about that process that you're going through. God, I really haven't prayed the same way since this happened because it was so hurtful and so painful. I didn't talk about it with you. I didn't talk about it with anyone. I just stopped. I'm still going to church. I'm still, by all appearances, a Christian. But I'm not actually believing anything right now. God, help me. 
I need to be saved from this, this state of, of mind. I need to be released so that I can have a fresh and vibrant faith. So I invite you to set aside a time this week to sit with God and talk about these issues. What is getting in the way of your faith? Why are you surprised when God answers prayers? Why would you be surprised? Has there been disappointment? Has something been unprocessed? I really like my daughter's kindergarten teacher because she's helping Olivia learn how to modulate her voice so she's not always talking at such a high volume. It's wonderful. Um, So Olivia taught me the system. Zero is not saying anything at all. One is a whisper. Two is conversation in the house. Three is playing on the playground. And four is bloody murder, which, is, which was previously her default volume. So when we're at home, I, I, say, I just say, Olivia, can you do a two? And she'll, she'll lower that down to conversation level. Great teacher, great tool. I think that some of us need to come before God in this kind of way. We need to share with him. We need to talk to him. And then we just need to go down to a zero. And we need to listen for him. We need to wait on him. We need to be still and know that he is God. Instead of always talking out a five or a four in our prayers, we need to just take before him those essential things and then wait on him. And so I'm inviting you this week into a new pattern. Maybe, maybe it's a way you haven't prayed in a long time. But to take those things before the Lord that you feel have diminished your faith that cause you to be even surprised when God even notices your existence. It shouldn't be that way. God loves you. You know, God loves you. He is a good father. Um, Take those things before God, process them with God, and then be still. Go down to a zero and sit in silence and seek after a touch from his Holy Spirit this week. Can you do that? This is important because if we stop asking God for things because we don't believe he's going to do anything, that's a huge tragedy. And God, we need to pray bigger prayers. We do. God is a good father. He's, he's instructed us to ask for whatever we need in Jesus' name, to bring everything before him, to trust him, to believe him. And God wants to do greater things in your life. He wants to do greater things in this church's life. If we're going to make space for that, we have to set aside that time to be with him and be raw, honest, and listen for him and get get right with him so that we can move forward with soft hearts and keep asking, seeking, and knocking. God is a good father. He's not the wicked landlord or the wicked judge or or the wicked father. He's, He's good. If you read all of the parables on prayer, God wants us to keep seeking, asking, and knocking to work through those disappointments, to come right to him so that we are not surprised when he actually does the things we ask because we know we are praying according to his will in the name of Christ. I want to bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I pray that God would shine his face upon you. I pray that you would see God's love for you through Jesus Christ, that you would know you are loved, that God does not value one person above another or disqualify a person because of something they've done or some rut they've been in. The God is with you. And may you hear his voice this week as you seek him in the quiet place. And may you overcome all obstacles to faith. And may you ask the Father. May you start asking him again in faith and seeing what he does in your life, seeing what he does in our church, see what he does in our city. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray these things.
you are dispersed.